This time, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it with me to the book of Numbers. We'll be in Numbers chapter 21, reading verses 4 through 9. And once you find that spot, I encourage you to also open up to John chapter 3. Numbers 21, which is our sermon text, and then our New Testament reading, John chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And if you are able, I invite you to stand with me now for the reading of God's word. Numbers 21, beginning with verse 4. This is God's word. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And we'll turn over to John chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15. John chapter 3. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You. We are thankful for Your Word. and We ask that Your Spirit may come and speak to us through it. We pray that the Lord Jesus Christ may be made manifest. May you give us the eyes of faith so that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen and reigning. May you help us to hear what we find in these passages. May our affections be stirred up towards the Lord Jesus that it may impact us not just in this moment, but even as we walk out. And Lord, may we see with profound wonder and adoration the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is lifted up for our sake. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. William Eno lived during the 19th and 20th centuries and grew up in New York City. He was a witness to a lot of the growth that came about, but also a lot of the growing pains that comes with living in a city like New York. He recalled the first traffic jam he had ever noticed in his life. It did not involve cars, but horse-drawn carriages. And he noted that 
Everyone just stopped moving. No one knew what to do in that situation. Even the cops were dumbfounded. But shortly after that, Mr. Eno went to work. And today, he is known as the father of traffic safety. He is credited with inventing the stop sign, roundabouts, the one-way street, and, and much more. And he did all this without ever learning how to drive. This is just one example of irony, a state of affairs, or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects. Scripture is also known to use various forms of irony. And our passage today would be one such example of it. We might think we know where the story, is, the story is going. And then the Lord, in His infinite wisdom, takes a route that we weren't even aware of. So in Numbers 21, we find ourselves in the final act of the book of Numbers. After a generation in the wilderness, the people of Israel are finally heading towards the promised land. But it hasn't been easy. The Israelites wanted to pass through Edom. They had a convenient road to the land of Canaan, but the king of Edom would not let them pass by. Was it out of military concern? Or, or, or was it to spite the line of Jacob, a, another instance of long-standing sibling rivalry? We, we don't know. But this meant that Israel would have to take back roads to go to the promised land. We see that Israel also had to engage in battle. The immediately preceding passage uh, tells us one of these stories, a war with one of the Canaanite kings. It has been a tiring journey, one that comes after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We know that this was self-inflicted. This happened because of their unbelief. They could have been in the land by now. But we can sympathize with their situation, can we not? The long car rides that start promising but take longer than expected. People are getting grumpy. Patience is being tested. In a sense, what's happening is rather normal. We are a people prone to wander, to grow impatient on our way to the heavenly destination. And this is what happened to the people of Israel. Our passage tells us that their souls were literally short. They were mentally spent on their journey. And we get to those points in our lives as well. Perhaps life hasn't turned out the way you've wanted it to. Maybe you thought that you would have a particular kind of job by now, and that just hasn't panned out. Relationships that you thought would last for decades have fallen apart. Or tragically, life-giving relationships that you've had have ended due to death. There are so many frustrations that come with living in a world filled with sin. How should we then respond to these disappointments and these frustrations? Not like the Israelites did in our text. The Israelites had an opportunity to pause, to reflect, and to thank the Lord who brought them safe thus far. They could have turned to one another in the midst of their weary journey and encouraged one another to wait on the Lord, knowing that His promise would surely come to pass. 
But what do they do instead? We see our answer in verse 5. The people spoke against God and his messenger, Moses. This is no different than what the Israelites have been doing since chapter 11. This is their MO. When things don't go their way, they grumble. They complain. But their way of speaking intensifies. Why have you led us out of the land of Egypt? They ask the Lord. Can you hear the contempt in their question? What, Yahweh, did you save us just so we could die someplace else? Why did you do what you did in Egypt? This is not just impatience due to a long car ride. This is open rebellion against the Lord. They say they have no food or water. But is that true? The Lord has provided them food from heaven. Listen to this retelling from Psalm 78 about what the Lord has done for Israel during their wilderness wanderings. Yet the Lord commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. To this abundance of food, the Israelites responded, we hate this. Now, boys and girls, have you ever had food on your plate that you didn't want to eat? Perhaps some vegetables or a food that you've never tried? Your parents or the adults who prepared the meal will speak gently to you in hopes of getting you to try it. They might even barter with you. They'll negotiate. If you try this, I will give you ice cream. But if you say it's gross or that you don't like the food, the adults are usually not too pleased, right? Well, how do you think the Lord will respond when the people of God reject the food that he has prepared? Food from the heavens. The Israelites called it worthless. The Israelites have rejected not only God's saving work, leading them out of Egypt, but also his providence and the food and drink that the Lord provided. The Israelites have, have rejected this. And, and, and just like when a child who does not eat mom or dad's food usually undergoes some degree of punishment, the Israelites will experience a form of punishment as well. And the Lord responds to this act of, re of rebellion with retribution. The Lord responds not with words, as he's done elsewhere in the book, but he responds in action. The holy God of Israel will not allow open rebellion to be swept under the rug. He must judge Israel for their sin. But the way that he does it is quite perplexing. Look at verse 6 with me. The Lord sent forth fiery serpents. What are these fiery serpents? Some scholars like to go a more fanciful route. This could be something like fire-breathing dragons. It's an interesting idea. Others believe that it's describing the result of a snake bite. When these snakes bite, it feels as though you are burning inside. I'm more inclined to think that it's the latter. These are venomous snakes that the Lord sent. But, but whatever these fiery serpents are, this is bad news for the Israelites. 
They were not your harmless garden snake in the backyard. One bite would be lethal. We don't know how long it would take, but no antivenom could provide the cure for this bite. If you are bitten, you would die. And this is bad news not just for the Israelites, but it's bad news for us as well. This passage illustrates for us the gravity of our sin, does it not? It's no joke. Our sin will kill us. And this judgment against the Israelites, all it does is is speed up the punishment. But all of our sin deserves death. Sin deserves to be punished. But why does this happen to God's people? Israel is, is God's possession. His royal priesthood. They were saved by God to bless the nations. Why did they get punished? Well, Hebrews 12 provides us the heart behind the Lord's discipline. Discipline is not a sign that God has left us, but rather it's a sign that God truly considers us sons and daughters. And that is the case even here. Listen to Hebrews 12 verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He does not chastise the son whom he rejects, but the one whom he receives. Israel was disciplined sternly, yet out of love. And even this form of punishment, though it would end in death for those who have rebelled against God, this punishment is actually being used by God to bring the people of Israel back to himself. And we see this in our next verse, verse 7. The Israelites were woken up. Their eyes were opened to what they had done. And as they looked around and saw loved ones being bitten, some of them dying, perhaps they were being bitten themselves, they realized that this was not just the case of are we there yet syndrome. This was open rebellion against the God of Israel. But what can Israel do now? Numbers 15 states that there is no sacrifice available for intentional sin. Will all of Israel die by the bite of a serpent? Long ago, a serpent helped end life in the garden for Adam and Eve through his scheming and deceit. Will a fiery serpent end life for Israel before they had even reached the promised land? No, there is still a way out of this. What is their only option but to go to their mediator, Moses? And that is what they do. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray for us. Intercede for us. This is the only way we can survive. And that is what Moses does. Moses is a faithful mediator. This is not the first time he has pleaded on behalf of Israel before the Lord. He's done it a few times just in this book. And this brief passage does not tell us what he says, but we can imagine that he appealed to the Lord's character. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. He appealed to the Lord's promise made to Abraham long ago. You have promised to bless the nations through this people. Spare them. He pleaded Israel's case 
as any good mediator would. And yet, this is only a shadow of the mediator of a new and better covenant. What Moses' intercession provides the people of Israel and us is a signal. It points past Moses and into the future to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back in a few moments to this. But having heard the pleading of Moses, how does the Lord provide a way out? To save Israel from the fiery serpents, the Lord uses a fiery serpent. He commands Moses to make one out of bronze or or copper and to set it on a pole. Why does God command Moses to make a serpent? It's quite perplexing given our history with serpents. Of course, we know the Genesis narrative. Adam and Eve were tempted by a serpent. But all throughout the ancient Near East, serpents played a religious role. Some cultures had gods of healing, symbolized by a serpent. Is the Lord seeking to make some sort of polemical comment here against the pagan nations? Perhaps. But I think there are two things that we can take away from this. First, the Lord is not using the false gods of the land to accomplish his purposes. He's the living and true God. He has no need for magic. He has no need for powers from false gods. He has everything that he needs to accomplish his will. But secondly, and most importantly, what is God telling us through the bronze serpent? It's that the source of Israel's judgment becomes the means of Israel's salvation from the judgment. Once again, the source of Israel's judgment becomes the means of their salvation from that judgment. This is the irony of our story. The Lord disciplines and redeems his people in an ironic way. So what, is the, what, is the people of Israel, what are the people of Israel to, to do with the bronze serpent? They are not to, to bow to it. They are not to touch it, to pray to it like other cultures would in their day. But they are to do what? Look and live. Not just look, but look in faith, believing that the Lord is able to save them from their affliction. What we don't find in this passage is the taking away of judgment. God does not figuratively snap his fingers and cause all the snakes to go away. The snakes will still bite. They will still be bitten. Israel will still be disciplined, and so will we throughout our lives. But when Israel looks up and they see the symbol of God's grace, the serpent on the pole, they will be saved from impending death. They will be spared from the full force of that judgment. And this is so important that our passage repeats this twice. If someone is bitten, all he or she must do is look and live. We heard a few moments ago that in Moses' intercession, we see a shadow of the intercession of Christ. But the passage does not end here. 
In a conversation with the Jewish leader Nicodemus, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 14, And as, the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The serpent on the pole was also a sign. It was not the end in itself. It, and just as a sign on the road points us to what is to come, the serpent on the pole points Israel ahead as well. It was serving a purpose for the people of Israel, pointing them to their true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the language that Jesus used in John 3. It must happen. The Son of Man must be lifted up. There is no other way. And to go back to our connection between Jesus and Moses, what does 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tell us about the ministry of our Lord? In Numbers 21, we see Moses pleading Israel's case. Well, what does Jesus do for us? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Friends, we are all sinners. We have all been bitten with a fatal bite because of our sinfulness. We are due to die. So what can we do? Go to our mediator, the one greater than Moses. He will plead our cause before the Father. And so in this narrative in the life of Israel, where, where they are judged and then saved by means of that judgment, we are given a foretaste of what is to come. God's purpose in salvation must come through suffering. There is no other way. It is through the suffering of Christ lifted up on a cross. It is in him that we are saved and redeemed from our judgment, from God's just wrath against sin. And this is the irony of redemption. Did anyone anticipate God using a bronze serpent to save Israel from the bites of serpents? I doubt it. Did anyone anticipate God using the death of his son to save people from their spiritual death? The world calls this foolishness. And yet, it is the greatest display of wisdom ever known. Christ dying for sinners. Christ rising for sinners. And though there is a connection between the serpent and the son, there are differences between the two. And I'll list for us three. First, the, the serpent is inanimate, meaning it's lifeless. The serpent is not able to relate to us. It was simply the means used by God to save us, to save Israel. The son, on the other hand, is a person. The Son of God took on human flesh. Jesus Christ actually saves. He's not just the means, He is the salvation. And He saved and is being lifted up on a cross. Secondly, the serpent is not worthy of our adoration, but Jesus is. And as you Read through scripture, you will find out that this bronze serpent does make an appearance later on in the life of Israel. 
in 2 Kings chapter 18. But what is happening in that chapter? The people of Israel are idolizing the bronze serpent. They are worshiping the bronze serpent, which should be ascribed to the God of Israel as being ascribed to a piece of bronze. And so, thankfully, at that time, we have a good king in the land. We have King Hezekiah who comes and takes care of it. He smashes the serpent into pieces. Jesus, however, is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of our praise. He is the one in whom we should delight in. And then finally, when Israel looked up, they saw a serpent on a pole. But when we look up with the eyes of faith, we do not see Christ just lifted up on the cross, though he was certainly crucified. But now we see him lifted up in glory. When we reflect on Jesus being lifted up on the cross, we cannot help but to think of what follows just a few short days later. His being lifted up in resurrection power, and then a month afterwards being ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And so now we look up to Christ where he reigns in the heavenly places, where he lives, where he reigns, and where he gives life by his spirit. Christ was lifted up in suffering and in glory for our salvation. And as one pastor put it, God raised his son so high that all the world may see him, believe him, and live. Not just the people of Israel at one particular point in time, but so that all the world may be spared of their fatal judgment. And if you don't know the Son of God, Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Look to the Son and live. Come before him, admitting your need for a savior, and you will find one who is greater than the bronze serpent. You will find a mediator greater than Moses. You will find a friend and a redeemer in this Jesus. And as we bring things to a close, I would like us to consider one point of application this evening. We've spent some of our time considering how the bronze serpent pointed forward to the Lord Jesus who was lifted up for our salvation. That's a glorious truth. We are spared from eternal death because of Christ. But what does this mean for our discipline today? We mentioned this earlier, but it's worth repeating. God disciplines us as children out of love. The Lord in his kindness will discipline us in our moments, days, seasons, even years of rebellion. The Christian life is not a life spared of discipline. Now, I, I don't want to, to speculate and, and try to discern what events in our lives would constitute as discipline from the Lord. That, that, that can be quite unhelpful. That can be very harmful. But one way that the Lord does discipline us is through the elders that the Lord has brought into our lives. Church discipline is one of those means that the Lord uses to discipline us. 
in our moments of rebellion. And it's not meant to be heavy-handed, nor should it be done out of contempt for the wayward individual, but it ought to be done in love, out of a desire to see him or her return to the fold. That's what the Lord does, even in our passage. He disciplined in order to restore, in order to bring back his beloved to himself. And this passage illustrates that well. And this is why we're disciplined. So don't consider the Lord's discipline a sign of God's rejection. It's not. It's a sign of his acceptance. He does this because he loves you, because he wants to spare you of a path leading towards destruction. So we are not spared of discipline, but we are spared of its full force because that has been paid for in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we to do then when the Lord disciplines us? Let's follow the the pattern established in our passage. We are to look up. We are to see with the eyes of faith the Lord Jesus who is risen, who is reigning on our behalf. But we are also to remember the great cost, Christ's life. He died for our sins because we sinned. And that ought to encourage us to turn from our sin and to look forward to our Lord. And then we are to come to the Lord in repentance, knowing that we will not be rejected, but we will be brought back into the fold. Why? Because Christ is pleading our cause. Because Christ promised that he would. Because he is a good and faithful mediator. This may not have been what you expected. Many of us, when we mess up, we want to do everything that we can to make it up to those that we messed up. That's that's okay in in and of itself. We can't do that with the Lord. But that is good news for us because Christ has provided what is necessary. And so that's why we can call Numbers 21, John chapter 3, good news. Let us pray. Oh, gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are truly benevolent towards your people. Even in those things that appear uh, to, to, to be hurtful or to be a sign of rejection, you are actually using that to bring us back to yourself. We thank you for the ways in which you discipline us because we know that it is just your kindness in leading us to repentance. But we thank you even more that you've provided a way to deal with our sinfulness. You have given us the Son who is lifted up on our behalf in suffering and in glory so that we are spared of the full force of your just wrath. But now we are also enabled and empowered to live in resurrection life. So may you help us. May you orient our hearts May you orient our eyes and our minds to be fixed towards the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is greater than the serpent, the one who is greater than Moses. And may we find him to be truly and completely satisfying to our souls. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.